0: okay we're we're back in First Corinthians, and we talked about div- the problem of division in the church in the first thirteen verses the last time we were in this book Okay, so Paul is the author in First Corinthians is a very practical book because it's writing about addressing a number of problems in the church. So there's lots that we can learn here. Corinth was a wealthy, and decadent pagan port city in Achaia, southern part of Greece, and um, uh, other thing we talked about last time is a lot of the things that Paul is addressing here is complete are completely countercultural to the culture of Corinth and the culture of the Roman Empire in general. So he's he's instructing the people on how they need to live as Christians. And he's not particularly bending to culture. But we talked about last time in verse 12 that there was some, he hits the problem of division first before all the other problems that he hits. And some people were saying, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, who's Peter, or I am of Christ. And so we talked about the problem of division, which actually Paul devotes uh, most of the first three or four chapters is focused on this, the problem of division in the church. So let's pick it up, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to repeat verse 13 because it ties into what follows. I'll read verses 13 to 17. I'm reading from the New King James Version. So, Paul says, verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize. But to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So, Paul starts off here by asking three rhetorical questions. The answer should be obvious to all the questions. He doesn't have to answer them. And he says, is Christ divided? answer is no. Was Paul crucified for you? The answer is no. Jesus was crucified for me. And the third one, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the answer would be no, I was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So three rhetorical questions he starts off with, all focused on unity in the church, to pull everyone back together to the basis of unity. Now, it's, it's, Ironic to me that some people have used this passage to say Paul is downplaying because Paul said, I I can't I didn't come to baptize people, I came to preach the gospel. People, people use that as a as a way to denigrate the importance of baptism. Paul didn't think baptism was that important. I just came to preach the gospel, I didn't come to baptize. Now I think this is pretty uh pretty clear to me anyway that that would be a misapplication of the passage. Uh, Paul didn't. Paul wasn't crucified either. He's not downplaying the crucifixion any more than he's downplaying the importance of baptism. And uh, this is not intended to be a study on baptism, but just I'd like to consider if anyone ever has heard that or struggle with that. What is Paul's position about the importance of baptism? Consider what Paul says a few different places. Uh well, first of all, let's go back to Acts chapter 18, when Paul was actually in Corinth, and he's alluding to this right here in verse 7. In Acts chapter 18, Paul is, is uh, I believe, second missionary journeys in Corinth. and verse 7, it says, He departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with his household, and many... <clears throat> Of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So this is this is the normal progression of the gospel that Paul preached, including in Corinth, as people believed and were baptized. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul talks about the basis of unity for all Christians. He says, "Let's endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called." in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So this is includes one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So baptism is very important. Not only that, but this is something that should unify all Christians. And it is, it is mind-boggling to me the extent to which baptism has caused division and fracturing in the body of Christ. This should be the basis of Christian unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Let's not complicate it and make it more complex than the scriptures do. If we want to be unified, let's start, let's start there. Uh, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Romans chapter six. Let's uh, turn there, if you if you would, with me, r- and uh, starting in verse four. This is Paul again. He says, "Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead for the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of light. Now consider what Paul says in the next next sentence here. For if we've been united together with him in the likeness of his death certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection so that's that's what paul says if we've been if we've been united with him in the likeness of death we're very with him in baptism we can look forward to to being unite, united with him in the likeness of his resurrection now it begins at baptism but we need to die to sin and continue living a, a life like that so uh So Paul certainly considers baptism to be important. And then considering Paul's own conversion, Acts chapter 22, conversion of Acts is in Acts chapter 9, 22 and 26. In Acts chapter 22, he recounts the story of his conversion to the the Jews in Jerusalem. And in verse 12, He says, a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that same hour, I looked at him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen that you should know his will, see the just one, hear the voice of his mouth, for you'll be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So this is the Apostle Paul personal encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, blinded, three days praying and fasting. And Ananias says, What are you waiting for? Arise, be baptized, and wash your sins away. So Paul's own conversion here be, be uh be an example to point to. So uh, but what Paul's saying here, he's not downplaying the importance of baptism. He says you're all baptized as something you all have in common. Christ was, Christ was the one who was crucified for you, not me. And you're baptized in the name of Christ. He said, I didn't even baptize that many people. I just baptized a few people in Corinth. So that's, I think that's the point that Paul is making. Make sure we don't take that out of context. All right. Uh, now. <clears throat> What I want to talk about next is what I would consider to be perhaps, um, I'll make a case for this, this may be the world's worst example of, of good marketing, okay, in terms of a message. I'm thinking, anybody, I don't know if anybody here, we had some some uh, new graduates, I don't know if anyone studied business or marketing, it was, it was here, but... Uh, this, think, think about this in, in terms of all the basic fundamental principles of good marketing. If this makes any sense, the message that Paul was preaching, first Corinthians chapter one, starting in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Verse 22, for Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So why would I consider this possibly the worst marketing plan in history? So what, what, is, what's the, what are the principles of good marketing? Well, you say, so okay, first thing you want to do is A good marketing, you do a marketing survey and you you consider your prospective customers. What are their desires? What are they looking for? And then the next thing is you convince them that you have exactly what they're looking for in the product that you're selling. You'll meet the needs that they feel. And then third, you emphasize all the benefits that they're going to get from buying what you're selling. And then the fourth thing, really important, you downplay any you minimize or ignore any of the costs, negative consequences or unwanted side effects of the product that you're offering, okay? That's basic marketing right there, okay? It doesn't matter if you're marketing what if you're marketing in a house, marketing a drug or any service, that's that's basically marketing right there. so you just save yourself. For your education, I told you everything you need to know about modern marketing. Now, most churches today that want to be evangelistic and want to reach out to the lost world around them, which is a wonderful thing, try to apply the corporate marketing principles to the gospel. And what does that look like? Well, let's 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 look around us here. What do the unchurched or the unbelievers, the agnostics and the atheists, what are they looking for in life? What are their felt needs? Well, let's see. Uh, Could you fix my family problem? My family's a mess, all right? My children are undisciplined. They're being corrupted by their worldly friends. My marriage is falling apart. Can you please fix my family? Or I'm feeling alienated in the world. I'm spending too much time on my phone. I don't feel connected to anybody. I've completely lost any sense of community. I need good friends and community. Or I'm just unhappy. I'm depressed. I feel, I feel lonely and isolated. Can you fix my happiness problems? And some of those problems may be a result of sin. It may be a result of drunkenness or Pornography, laziness, immorality could be, could be the result of all kinds of sins. So that's what the churches do the marketing survey of the world around them. And they'll say, okay, let's come up with some programs that we can sell to the community to do this. Now, if you're, if you're in a church that, that, uh, that, that is, is right smack in the middle of a campaign to do something like this. Okay. My apologies kind of, but, but just, just, I'm not trying here to destroy anybody, but I want to contrast this what and 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 i i spent years in churches that did this that took this basic approach right here all right now good for them at least they're trying to reach out to the lost world and and people have been saved through this but i want you to understand this is the opposite of what paul was doing contrast with the message the message that paul preached was christ crucified all right the jews what are they looking for Miraculous signs. They are highly offended by preaching that Christ was crucified on a wooden cross. This is a stumbling block to them. The Greeks, the Gentiles, what are they looking for? They're looking for higher wisdom. This business about your Savior was killed on a cross. An uneducated Jewish carpenter was killed on a cross in in a back corner of the world. This is highly offensive to them. They consider this the height of foolishness. They're looking for wisdom. So, question I have for you: First thing I want to do when I'm reading these scriptures, understand in context. Paul's not writing to me; he's writing to the people in Corinth, and to say, okay. What were they thinking? What was the problem that he was addressing? And what was he communicating to them? How would they have understood that? And then step back and say, all right, now that I understand that, is there any application for me in the situation that I'm in? And one of the questions that I'm left with, this is always the the so what question, is what on earth are we supposed to learn from this? Are we supposed to come up with the most offensive gospel that we probably can and just just alienate everybody? It seems like that's what they're doing. Should we try to be deliberately offensive with the gospel? Should we take the most offensive parts of the gospel and lead with those? Is that what we're supposed to learn? Well, question. To understand this in context, Paul says this message of the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. Uh, Why was it such a stumbling block? Well, uh. The, the one, one passage that I've read among the early Christians that, that came to mind immediately in this was one of my favorite early Christian works, Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo. So it's written around the year 160, and it is an intense debate between Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was a Samaritan. He's from Samaria. And he was an unbeliever. But he he studied Greek philosophy, so he was a philosopher, he wore the philosopher's robe. And then one day, as he was traveling about, an old Christian gentleman spied the philosopher's robe on him and went after him, and challenged him with the truth, threw him some questions he couldn't answer, and pointed him to the wisdom contained in the prophets and in Christ. And that, that threw Justin completely off his game. He went back, studied the Old Testament, ended up becoming a Christian and became one of the greatest apologists in my mind that, that I've ever encountered. And in dialogue with Trifo, there's a debate between Justin, who is a Samaritan, who became a Christian, and Trifo, who is a Jew. And they're duking it out on the Old Testament scriptures. And and so Trifo and his friends are coming after Justin Martyr, and they're giving all the objections based on the scriptures. And Justin, who is a master of the Old Testament, completely demolishes their argument and and just just really really carries the day in a powerful way. So was, he's always been an inspiration, upward call to me. And I remember years ago thinking, when I grow up, I want to be like that guy. Okay, <laughs> I want to be able to do that. I don't know how he did it, but I want to learn how to do what he did. All right. So he's been an inspiration to me and particularly dialogue with Trifo. So so this this ties in with the idea why was the the cross such a problem for the Jews and this is this is Trifo is arguing with Justin now I'm going to quote from him. It says then Trifo remarked be assured all our nation waits for Christ. And we admit all the scriptures which you've quoted refer to him. So he says, yeah, we we agree. We are looking for the Christ to come. We're waiting for him. But whether Christ should be so shamefully crucified, this we are in doubt about. For whosoever is crucified is said in the law to be accursed. So that I'm exceedingly incredulous on this point. It's quite clear indeed the scriptures announced that Christ had to suffer. So I guess he was familiar with Isaiah 53. But we wish to learn, if you can prove it to us, whether it was by suff- and, by the suffering cursed in the law. Bring us on then, said Trifo, by the scriptures, that we may be persuaded by you. For we know he should suffer and be led as a sheep. But prove to us whether he must be crucified and to die so disgracefully and so dishonorably by a death cursed by the law. For we cannot bring ourselves even to think of this. And what's he talking about, a death that was cursed by the law? Paul alludes to this in Galatians chapter 3. All right, this is now this the quote I just quoted from his dialogue with Trifo, chapters 89 and 90, and I see Fathers, volume 1, page 244. I'll put all the references in the notes, which we post along with the audio lessons uh, with our online teaching. So what what Trifo is referring to here is the passage in Deuteronomy 21-23, which says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Or hang, hangs on the wood. So he's saying, you know, it's somebody who is is a criminal, terrible criminal, and they're, they're, they're hung on a tree. This is, you take them down because cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. So of all the manners of death, this is one that is specifically cursed in the law of Moses. And so Trifo's thinking, how on earth? I understand that Christ is supposed to suffer. He's going to be led like a sheep to the slaughter. Okay, you, you we I, I grant you that but how could he possibly die the most cursed death of being hung on a tree? Uh, And this also, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that uh, Christ crucified is a stumbling stone to the Jews. What's that referring to? That's the prophecy of Isaiah 8.14. It's alluded to by Jesus in Matthew 21 and by Paul in Romans 9 and Peter in 1 Peter 2. It's the prophecy of Isaiah 8, 14, which says he will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. This is the many prophecy, many places in the Old Testament where Christ is referred to as a stone. Peter refers to three of them, but there are several actually in Scripture. And this is one of them, that he will be a stumbling stone. He will be a stone of offense that people are going to trip over him. That's the kind of stone he's going to be, as well as many other, many other things that are, that are embodied in stones in Scripture. Further on in the discussion, Justin continues, and he turns the tables and he uses the Scriptures to go after Trifo. And he throws him a tough question from the Old Testament. He says, tell me, wasn't it God who who commanded by Moses no image or likeness of anything in heaven above or on the earth should be made? And yet who caused the bronze serpent to be made by Moses in the wilderness and set it up for a sign by which those bitten by serpents were saved? Yet he's free from unrighteousness, referring to Moses. Now think about that. The book of Exodus, and the Ten Commandments, God said, don't make a likeness of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath. And then when Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, the people made the golden calf and got in tremendous trouble for that. So, But later on, in Numbers chapter 20, when the people are bitten by serpents, we went through this in our recent series on the book of Numbers. People are bitten by serpents, and God tells Moses, make a bronze snake and put it up on a pole that everyone bitten by the serpent can look to the bronze serpent and live. This is the only way that they're going to avoid being killed by the poisonous snakes. So Justin is challenging Trifo. He says, okay, you want, you want, to, you want to take me on the Old Testament? Answer this question for me. How, how come Moses wasn't in trouble for doing that? Bad enough to make an image of any animal, but a snake? The very representation of Satan? What's with that? And Justin continues, for by this, as I previously remarked, he proclaimed the mystery by which he declared he would break the power of the serpent, which occasioned the transgression of Adam, and would bring to them that believe on him who was foreshadowed by this sign, that is the one to be crucified, salvation from the fangs of the serpent. Which are wicked deeds, idolatries, and other unrighteous acts. Unless the matter be so understood, give me a reason why Moses set up the bronze serpent for a sign and bade those that were bitten gaze at it, and the wounded were healed. And this too, when he had himself commanded that no likeness of anything whatsoever can be made. So the next day, the Jews, the Trifle and his friends come back after thinking about this. And they have no answer. <clears throat> I said, on this, another of those that came on by the second day said, you've spoken truly. We cannot give a reason. I have frequently interrogated the teachers about this matter, and none of them gave me a reason. Therefore, continue what you're speaking. We're paying attention while you unfold the mystery. On account of which the doctrines of the prophets are falsely slandered. So he's talking about. He says Moses says, "Raise the serpent up on a sign." This is a sign to the people. So he continues on. It's it's a long quote. I'll I'll put it in the notes. Uh, and Justin explains. He says, "Look." He says, "The idea here is that." The one who would be held up on the pole. Jesus points this in John chapter 3. He says, just like the bronze serpent was held up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that all who believe on him will not perish but have eternal life, in John chapter 3. It's right before verse 16. That's the part right before that. So this was a sign that the serpent would be defeated. The fangs of the serpent would be broken by this sign of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Um, Justin concludes. The statement in the law, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that's from Deuteronomy twenty-one, twenty-three, confirms our hope. Which depends on the crucified Christ, not because he's been, he who was crucified is cursed by God, but because God foretold that which would be done by you all and by those like you who do not know that this is he who existed before all, who is eternal priest of God, the King and the Christ. That's from uh, uh, chapters 94 to 96, and I see Father. Volume 1, pages 246, 247. So crucifixion of Christ was a stumbling block to the Jews, understandably, because in the law of Moses it says, cursed is anyone hung on a tree. But Paul explained that in Galatians 3, verses 10 to 13, that it also said that anyone who cursed is anyone who doesn't continue to do all the things written in the law of Moses, which will be all of us, and how Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for this. So the point here is all of this, although the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews because of what it says in the Old Testament, if you really understand the Old Testament deeply, you understand this is a fulfillment of prophecy, the fact that it would be a stumbling stone for people, the fact that the Son of Man would be lifted up. There's so many places in the early Christian writers, particularly a dialogue with Trifo and just uh, Tertullians, an answer to the Jews, where the Jews are struggling with this idea of the cross and they go through prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament that foreshadow the cross. The story of Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain, and uh, Abraham puts the wood on his son, Isaac, as he's going up to the place where his beloved son will be sacrificed, foreshadowing the cross. The story of Noah's Ark, where the people are saved by water, wood and faith from the destruction to come on the whole world. The story in Exodus chapter 17 of Moses and the Amalekites, where Tertullian makes a point, Justin Morgan makes the same point. He says, why on earth would God have Moses praying in such a strange posture? Normally, you, pray, you might pray, you know, down on your knees with your hands folded or maybe prostrate on the ground. But he tells them, sit on a rock, hold up your hands all day with the staff of God between your hands and a man on either side of you. What's that remind you of? It's the crucifixion of Christ, holding his arms up all day long so that Jesus, Joshua in Greek, would win the battle for the people. So over and again throughout the scriptures, we see the cross foreshadowed, not just in Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, but many places. So it's all in fulfillment of prophecy. The Jews look for signs. Well, they're all over the place, okay? One of them was the sign that was made in the wilderness of putting the bronze serpent on the pole. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. I was thinking about this. You know, Jews look for signs, and the Greeks are looking for wisdom. But what do we have to offer? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. In verse, starting in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. People who are looking for signs. Jesus says, you have one. It's going to be the resurrection on the third day. He told it in advance. People who are looking for wisdom, he says, on the day of judgment when all of the dead will be raised, the queen of the south, who's that referring to? That's the queen of Sheba who came from the ends of the earth seeking the wisdom of Solomon. And he says, she will condemn you. She was seeking after wisdom. And now you have one greater than Solomon who is here. You're looking for signs. The Jews who are looking for signs and the Greeks who are looking for wisdoms. Jesus has the answer to both. On the day of judgment, don't let the men of Nineveh or the queen of Sheba rebuke you for not paying attention to the signs or not seeking the wisdom of God. Well, those who are looking for signs, the Jews, or people who are like that, and that's not just Jewish people, people like, yeah, hey, show me an evidence, show me a sign, show me something tangible I can believe. In Acts 18, we're introduced to Apollos, who was described as a man who was mighty in the Scriptures. He knew the Old Testament prophecies, and he used them powerfully to prove to the Jews from the fulfilled prophecies that Jesus was the Christ. That's not just for the Jews in the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15, we'll get to that eventually here. So 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds the church in Corinth. Now, there were some Jews in the church, but it was predominantly a Gentile church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, in the beginning, it talks about he's talking about them as being, you know, Mostly, mostly, virtually all Gentiles. So, this to a Gentile church. Think about the foundation that was laid in the beginning. Paul says, First Corinthians chapter fifteen, the beginning of the chapter. I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried and rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was crucified to pay the price for our, our sins and to redeem us from Satan's captivity. Okay, when it says he died for our sins according to the Scriptures and he was raised according to the Scriptures, he's not talking about the four Gospels. He's talking about in fulfillment of the prophecies that were written hundreds of years before him. And that was what Justin Martyr explains. That was what converted him. He was an unbeliever, but he was a truth seeker. And he was someone who invited himself to studying philosophy. But uh but that that's what brought him to the faith. And, and in my own journey, I was I was I was raised uh and, and I was raised from a Christian Christian background, but I in my twenties lost my faith for various reasons. I, I was just I was asking some questions and no one had any answers. And I was also also tempted by various sins that were out there, too. So it's, it's both of them work together. But uh, I, was, I was kind of a truth seeker, more of a philosophical type person. At least I was back then, anyway. So, so I, was, I had lots of questions. And I remember I came to church, and the preacher was preaching from the book of Ecclesiastes. What's the meaning of life? Meaningless, meaningless, everything. He was going through all the things that he devoted himself to, found them all really meaningless. And that resonated with me. I thought, wow, that's, that's how I feel. That makes sense. And then the preacher went on went on from there, and it challenged me. I thought, you know, I better get serious about this. I better start reading the scriptures. And I thought, hey, either this is true or it's not. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. It has nothing to do with my family. has nothing to do with where I was born. It happened or it didn't, and then I got into it and and realized later on that uh, okay, you can actually prove the faith from the fulfilled prophecies and the scriptures, and that's what Apollos did, that's what Paul did, Peter did. in The book of Acts he went through the book of Acts and just just did that or just did that uh, ourselves. So 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 that's the challenge. It was it was a con- so some people are approaching the gospel from the perspective of being they want wisdom, they want truth and uh uh you got you, you can't be satisfied with the the wisdom that the world has to offer that Jesus offers a greater wisdom that he is the wisest man who ever lived. He has wisdom that dwarfs that of Solomon. Solomon was the one who God said he prayed for wisdom, and God said he gave him more wisdom than than any king that would that was before or would come after him, only to be surpassed by by Jesus. Now, Bible also talks in one Corinthians that Christ is not only has the wisdom of God, but He is the wisdom of God. Christ was filled with the Spirit and fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah chapter eleven that uh, He would be He would be uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the fifth Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, godliness, and the fear of the Lord. He was filled with all of them. But wisdom is the first quality that's mentioned of the qualities of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was filled with the spirit of wisdom. He had more than anyone else. Many early Christians also tied this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 back to Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8, there's a discussion about wisdom. about the, the wonders and, and the benefits of seeking wisdom and wisdom here is personified it's treated as, as if it's as if it's a person or a being starting in verse 23 I'm reading from version based on the Septuagint but yours should read pretty similar if I declare to you the things that happen daily, I also remember to recount the things of old. The Lord created me, this is referring to wisdom in context, in the beginning of his ways for his works. He established me in the beginning before time, before he made the earth, before he made the abysses, before the going forth of the fountains of waters, before the mountains were created. He begot me before all hills. The Lord made the fields and the uninhabited places and the inhabited heights under heaven. When he prepared heaven, I was present with him. And when he set apart his throne upon the winds, when he made the strong things above the clouds and made sure the fountains under heaven and made strong the foundations of the earth, I was working beside him and was I was he in whom he rejoiced daily and continually. I was gladdened by his face. When he completed the worlds, he rejoiced, and he rejoiced in the sons of men. Now, therefore, my son, hear me. Blessed is the man who shall hearken to me, and the man who shall guard my ways. So this is uh this is he talks about I was begotten before the hills. This, this Jesus was begotten before all ages. the word created here, of course, of course the Son of God is not a created being, so it's not created in that sense but uh, but he was he was begotten. He came from the Father as, as you know as, as one fire would beget another fire or as the sun would beget the rays that come from it. So he was begotten in that sense. So uh, involved in all creation, begotten before all the hills, and, uh, you know, this is, this is the wisdom that offers the invitation to all of us. So Paul talks about the message of the cross, which is a stumbling block to the Jews, unless they look deeper and foolishness to the Greeks, unless they're more serious about seeking the truth, just as, just as Justin Martyr did, uh, the message on the cross is that Jesus died on the cross in fulfillment of the prophecies, the miraculous sign. But there's more to it than that. You know, a lot of people say, well, what's the message? The message of the cross, well, Jesus died for our sins on the cross. So that's 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 the message of the cross, but there's a little more to it than that. Jesus had some few more things to say about the cross than that he would be lifted up and, and crucified. One of the things Jesus said about the cross, you know, uh, it's, uh, is it uh, John Wesley who said the most unpopular verse in the Bible is that no one wants to preach, is without holiness no one will see God? Okay, I'll, 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 I'll lift one up to be a rival to that one. This will be maybe, maybe in second place, where Jesus said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that anyone who wants to come after him must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. So the message of the cross is not just that Jesus died on the cross for us so we can all be happy, That's it's great that he did it all for us, but that we are called to follow in his footsteps, that if we want to live with him, we need to die with him as well. Paul talked about that in Philippians chapter 2. He says, your mind needs to be the same as Christ who humbled himself and became obedient to death on the cross. That you need to follow his example. I like what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll close there. Starting in verse 21. It's very challenging. One of the most challenging verses in the New Testament, team. Peter says, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no deceit, nor was any, de- nor, no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges right, righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. You were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Um, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. So, this is the picture. Is it to be a Christian? doesn't mean we just sit back and say, thank you, Jesus, for all that you did for us. He's calling us to follow his example, including going to the cross. That's the Christian life. okay? And that involves saying, dying to the flesh when our flesh is crying out for some temptation, whether it's lusting or whether it's pride. Or gossiping or slandering or, or whatever the sin is. The, cr- the flesh is crying out. That's what it means. It says you got you, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. Whether it's that, whether it's persecution, it could be anything. But uh, but de- denying the flesh that we have to we have to be willing. The message of the cross is not just that Jesus died for the cross, but that we need to follow his example. That's very challenging, that's very convicting. Now, I talked about marketing. You know, marketing you want to say that it doesn't cost anything. I was listening to an ad in the radio for roofs and I thought I got a kick out of this. And it said uh it said uh <laughs> you get a brand new roof on your house and it can be as low as the cost can be as low as $150 a month. And I'm thinking, what on earth does that mean? Does that mean it's 150? Does that mean if it could be as low as, does that mean if you live in a little dog house it costs you that much? Okay? Or does that mean it's going to be $150 a month? But when you're 95, you can go walking down the street with a cane and be putting that check for $150 in the in the 60 years later in the mailbox. Okay, who knows what that means? But basically, they're downplaying the cost. Jesus is doing the opposite. He says you need to count the cost, and you know, student when he's fully trained will be just like his teacher. So that's 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 the. That's the principle there is that we have the message of the cross is he died for us, but we have to follow in his footsteps and be willing to do the same thing. It's foolishness, stumbling block, but to those who are saved, it's the power of God. Amen.